Hey guys, you're amazing. Um, I need to tell you something funny. So Cam texted me a while back, uh, what was it, three, four, five weeks ago now, and he said, uh, hey, would you be interested in speaking? Uh, we're going to speak about dependence on God. And I texted back and said, man, my preaching is exhibit A. Um, I always get to this point where I've been making some sermon notes and I've been reading and I get to this point where I'm like, you know, if it was on paper instead of electronic, I would screw it up and just chuck it in the bin and say, man, I can't do this. And I always get to this point and I break down and I go, what am I doing? I can't do this anymore. I should never have said yes. Someone else should do it. And I sat down in church this morning and listened to Nathan speak about prayer and I thought, he should be preaching tonight. Um, <laughs> And so I texted back and I said, yeah, look, my, my sermons are always exhibit A on dependence on God. Uh, and then I kind of typed, but the rest of my life, well, dot, 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 uh, not so much. Uh, we're going to talk about prayer and dependence on God. I'm going to focus more about dependence on God uh, than I'm about prayer, but we will finish up talking about prayer uh, towards the end. And... Before um, I go too far, I want to talk definitions. Now, if you're a lawyer, who, hands up, who's a lawyer? Great, I can tell stories about lawyers. Um, <laughs> if you're a lawyer and you've read a legal contract or you've ever written a legal contract, they always do definitions, and it's either right at the start or it's at the very end, and they have this little dictionary section. Um, sometimes it's even called dictionary. And what they do is they capitalise letters and they say, this word means such and such. And every time you see that word in the contract, this is what it really means. And lawyers sometimes get a bit sneaky, like say, yeah, when I say cost, I really mean whatever the hell I like, and it says whatever I want to charge, that's what cost means. Um, and they do all sorts of sneaky stuff. I, want to don't, I want to, don't want to do sneaky stuff, I want to just talk definitions for a second. So when we're talking prayer, this is what we mean. Prayer is both a verb and a noun. It's a thing, but it's also a thing that we do. It's a doing thing. Um, it's used lots and lots of different ways in the Bible. Um, it's used as, a, as an approach to God. We, the Bible talks about that as prayer. Sometimes it's um, to ask. When the Bible talks about prayer, it's a lot of asking. Sometimes it's a triple O prayer. Um, it's a, we're in big trouble and people come to God in prayer. Sometimes it's intercession. Sometimes it's, I'm praying for someone else. I'm taking their needs or their circumstances to God. That's, uh, the Bible talks about that kind of prayer. Uh, sometimes it's to desire. I pray that such and such will be true for you or will happen for you. It's, a, it's I want this to happen. And sometimes that's called a prayer. Um, and so when I talk about prayer tonight, I'm talking about not any one of those things, but all of those things. I'm trying, trying to talk in the broadest possible sense. In a sense, just communication with God. And communication is a two-way thing, not a one-way thing. Um, otherwise it would be called talking. It wouldn't be called prayer. Uh, and so you'll see in our passage tonight that there is two-way communication. There is God directing Elijah, and there is Elijah talking to God and bringing his circumstance uh, to him. That's definition number one. Definition number two, dependence on God. What do we mean when we say dependence from God? And as I was thinking uh, dependence on God, what, when I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking, well, dependence for what? Um, what are, like dependence on God for what? Uh, what, am, what, am I, what am I leaning on God for? What am I expecting? Um, who else would I lean on if I wasn't leaning on God? Um, 
What am I expecting? Uh, and so I did a whole lot of sort of thinking and reading and praying. Um, had to say that, didn't I? Praying. Um, and uh, I prayed for the dictionary and it came. And here's what the dictionary says. Uh, it says, dependence is the state of relying on or being controlled by something or someone else. I'll say that again. The state of relying on or being controlled by someone or something else. Um, now, here's some definitions. Uh, if you have a mortgage, if you buy a house, I hope we all do one day, if you can save up a couple of million bucks. Um, if you have a mortgage, you're dependent on your job to pay the bills, right? You're dependent on your job to meet the requirements of your mortgage. A plant doesn't get very far. It is dependent on sunlight and water to grow, right? Without sunlight and water, plants don't do so well. Uh, addictive drugs, hope none of you have had this experience. Addictive drugs, we call them a drug of dependence, right? We become reliant on them. In fact, we become controlled by them. That's dependence. And so when we talk about dependence, I'm not just talking about choosing certain things and saying, well, I've got some things under control, but this I'm depending on God, right? That's just an ask. What I'm talking about is that state of reliance or influence or control where everything I do is an outworking of the fact that God is in my life. God is running my life. Now, this might seem weird and foreign to you. That's okay. This is a journey. This is not an event. Not expecting uh, any one of us to be there immediately. Um, But this is actually the foundation of the gospel. This is what the gospel is all about. If you think about it, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is you couldn't save yourself. You needed saving, but God could save you and did save you. So we are dependent on him for salvation. That's the whole reason we're here, I hope, is that we have depended on God to provide a salvation. And ironically, if you're anything like me, I'm happy to depend on God for salvation, but other things I think probably I can handle them. Thanks, God. And it's a weird thing, um, but we think that some things are under our control when, in fact, most of them are not. Now, before we get into the passage, and Tali's going to bring us the passage in a second, I'm going to put you in the DeLorean, and we're going to get up to 88 miles an hour, and I'm going to whiz you through, like a time machine, uh, through the history of the people of Israel. And the reason I'm going to do that is because it kind of gives you the background as to where we end up and this little showdown that happens uh, in the book of First Kings. So we're in the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible, um, while I'm talking, flick your way to 1 Kings chapter 18. <laughs> I had a mind blank for a second. Okay, so let me give you a really brief rundown uh, on the people of Israel. God originally promises Abraham uh, that he would make him into a great nation. Uh, but it's, Abraham is just him and his wife right now. They're kind of just, you know, single income, no kids. And Abraham doesn't think that God is, is really going to deliver. Uh, and he doesn't have IVF. So he goes and has a surrogate uh, kid via his Egyptian servant. He's 86. He thinks time's running out, and it probably was. Uh, and he becomes a dad. And God says comes back to him, he says, no, no, that's not what I meant when I said I'm going to give you a family. I mean, I'm going to give you, Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a family. And so 14 years later, Abraham's 100 now, and they have their first kid with him and his wife. 
and they call that kid Isaac. Isaac grows up, he has kids, uh, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau comes out first, Jacob is the second one. But Jacob, even though he's not the firstborn, he really values that firstborn position, so much so that he trades it with Esau. He tricks uh, his brother into trading it, and then he tricks his dad into giving him the firstborn blessing. So much he values this firstborn position. Esau gets upset, uh, decides to murder his brother. Jacob finds out, runs away to avoid getting murdered. Fair enough. Jacob comes back, they make up, everyone's fine again. Jacob has lots of sons. One of them is Joseph. Joseph, you know the story, he wasn't the favourite amongst his brothers. Uh, They do him in, they sell him into slavery. Um, There's a bit too much favouritism going on in that family. Joseph ends up in Egypt. Then the famine hits uh, and the family has to go to Egypt to buy food. Joseph is there, they didn't realise he's a prince now and always some sort of important guy. And uh, he says, wow, it's me. Oh, big family makeup. Uh, and the whole family moves to Egypt. A few hundred years later, the Egypt say, wow, this family's gotten really big, like really big. And if they got upset with us and started a civil war, we'd be in big trouble. We better do something about them. I know, we'll make them into slaves. Uh, so the, Egypt's, sorry, the Israelites, um, Jacob's whole family, goes from being resident in Egypt to being slaves in Egypt. Bam, just like that. I don't know if you've ever thought about any parallels there between a people group who suddenly becomes enemy of the state. So this whole family, this huge people group, uh, has now become slaves. God rescues them. He rescues them through Moses. You know the story, that whole plagues thing. Um, he, God leads them out. It's a miracle. And God leads them out and he says, I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to give you a promised land. He gives them the law, they get to the border of the land and the people are like, yeah, I know you said you'd give us this land, but those people look really scary. We don't think we can defeat them. And God says, well, if you don't think we can defeat them, then we won't. You go walk around in the desert for a while until you all die off uh, and I'll bring someone else into the land. Uh, eventually they do come into the promised land and they push most of the people out of that land, but not all. And they're not fully obedient in the way that they move in. Uh, they've been there a little while and then they decide we want to be like the people around us. We don't want God as a king. We want to have a human king. Uh, Samuel, who's sort of the spiritual leader at the time, he gets very upset and God says, hey, chill, it's not, it's not you. They're not really talking about you. They're talking about me. And so he said they can have a human king and they'll realize what a mistake they made. And yep, they got Saul. And that was a mistake. Uh, he's not the greatest king. So after time... God installs or God anoints uh, David as king. Uh, David has to wait a long time until he can take the throne, but eventually he does. He's a good king. He's not perfect. Uh, And after his reign, Solomon, his son, takes the throne, becomes king. Solomon's amazing. He's wise. Uh, He gets a pretty rich kind of kingdom going on. Um, But when he dies, he has a very greedy son called Rehoboam. Rehoboam decides to ramp up the taxes and he says, man, if you thought my dad was the tax man, wait till you see me. And people get really upset and the the country splits. Two stay true or stay loyal to Rehoboam and the rest split off. So you've got two tribes and ten tribes and they've, they've split north and south. And now we've got two kingdoms of God's people, not one, Uh, Not ideal. And there's a whole succession of kings. 
And if you want an interesting read, if you're into politics, you know, read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. It's just this revolving door. Um, if you thought Rudd Gillard Rudd was interesting, um, <laughs> this is even more interesting. Uh, Ahab is one of the kings in the succession of kings in the northern kingdom. Uh, he's not a good king. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was the most evil king to date. In this whole chain of kings that they've had, he's the worst yet. And it's in his kingdom that we step into this passage and find ourselves in 1 Kings chapter 18. And Elijah, in the, during the reign of King Ahab, Elijah shows up out of nowhere. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know anything about his background. We just know that he came from a desert place. We know that he's a prophet. We don't know how he became a prophet. We don't know how he came to know God. Um, but Elijah shows up and he just bowls up to the king and he says, you know what? It's not going to rain. And it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And then, very wisely, he walks out and disappears. And he's gone. He just disappears off the map for three years. And it's eventually when he comes back to see Ahab. Uh, and Ahab says, man, you are causing trouble here. Three years we've had no rain and you're causing trouble. And Elijah proposes something to King Ahab. Okay, so this is in chapter 18, and we're starting at verse 20, if you want to follow along. I'm reading in the NIV, but whatever version, it's going to be pretty similar. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets, the prophets of Baal, on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, well then follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us, let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him and he prepared the altar of the Lord, which was, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. I don't know how much that is. Maybe a lot. 
He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up all the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And on that lovely note. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't need that. No, they do that. Yeah, that last verse, that's not the, that's not the object lesson. Uh, so I'm going to talk about this passage in three sections. Firstly, we're going to talk about the divine showdown, this contest um, between false and true. Uh, then I'm going to talk about calling on false gods, and then I'm going to talk about calling on the true God. So first of all, let's talk about the divine showdown. As you can imagine, after three years of drought, um, if I was a Baal worshipper, I'd be praying for rain. I'd be saying, Baal, can you not do something about this lack of rain? Baal was actually a god of fertility. The worship of Baal, um, in all of its sort of weird and wackiness, um, was supposed to bring fertility both to the earth and for them uh, as families. They believed that Baal could bless them with children, and they believed that Baal would bless their crops and bring rain to their land. And so when Elijah just strolls in and says, it's not going to rain anymore, that was like a direct affront um, to their god, Baal. Um, and if, if this wasn't enough to show that Baal was not the true God, uh, then Elijah sort of strolls in and says, let's have a showdown. Let's just rock up and have a bit of a face-off. And whoever wins, let's just decide that that's going to be the true God. And the people are like, that's a good idea. Let's, let's put it to the test. Interestingly enough, the Israelites had not totally given up on their God and they hadn't totally turned to Baal. They had kind of tried to blend the two together. And from the reading that I've done, it seems to indicate that, that Israel were wanting both. They were saying, well, yeah, God was the God who brought us through the wilderness. He provided for us. He gave us this land. And we haven't totally given up on him. Like, that's cool to have that God. But Baal is there, and he's, he's the one who brings us children, and he brings us uh, crops, makes our crops grow. And we want that stuff too. Uh, and so... We want both. Uh, I don't know about you. I, I think that kind of is understandable in a way, that they were saying, well, um, I don't want to give up one for the other. I, I'd like to have a bit of everything. Uh, and as I read this, I think, wow, I, I think I have more in common with the Israelites than I'm comfortable with. Um, enticed away from solely worshipping the one true God and trying to incorporate other things in my life that I think will bring me satisfaction and happiness and fulfilment, yeah, um, I, 
I can identify with that. That makes me uncomfortable to say that, but I think that's true of me. Um, And I might not have a literal shrine in my home. I might not be uh, sacrificing my kids. I might not be engaged in uh, prostitute temple worship. Um, But there is an element of truth in the fact that I look to other things, not just the one true God, when I'm seeking happiness and I'm seeking fulfillment, I'm seeking contentment, uh, and... This is something that God doesn't tolerate. If you read the Old Testament, the first command uh, that God gave when he gave the law to the Israelites, he says this, you shall have no other gods before me, for I, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And when he says jealous, he doesn't mean "I, I want something that someone else has. He says, no, I'm jealous. I deserve your soul love, your soul devotion, all of your uh, attention. And it's, it's rightfully mine, and I want it. Um, and God says, I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for that. Um, he wants what is rightfully his. And the, the challenge that Elijah gives to the people is the challenge that you and I have right now. Uh, and that's in verse 21, 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will we waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. And if Baal is God, we'll just follow him. But we can't have both. We can't have a foot in both camps. God doesn't open the door for us to say, look, here's the Bible and here's Jesus and here's a way of living. Uh, And if you can supplement it with some other stuff, great. That's not what God lays in front of us. He lays in front of us an all-or-nothing choice. If I'm God, then follow me. And if I'm not, well, fine, go follow something else. But don't try to have it all. Don't try to have both. We live in a world where there is literally a spiritual battle going on. There is a contest for your heart, for your devotion, for your love. And just like God demonstrated his power to Ahab when he stopped the rain and clearly... Uh, showed himself more powerful than Baal. Jesus has showed his power over the forces of evil. Jesus has showed his rightful place as king of the universe. And it is now for us to choose. There is going to be an ultimate showdown at the end of the world when, just like the prophets of Baal were proved to be wrong and they were ended, So those who don't follow Jesus will be proved wrong and it will end for them. Elijah's message for us uh, is this. How long will we waver? How long will we waver? If God is the true God, then follow him. If not, then don't. But don't waver. There is no kind of having it both ways. There is no playing it safe. There's no hedging You can't have a bet each way. Well, you might say, I'm not bringing false gods into my life. I've clearly uh, made a choice to follow Jesus, and if that's the case, that's great. You might not be the perfect Christian, but, you know, it's not like I'm worshipping idols or anything. Uh, I'm not looking to false gods. Oh, really? I thought that too. So we switch our, our focus and we... Stop looking at the people of Israel and the, uh, 
the ultimate showdown, and we turn our eyes then to look at the prophets of Baal. Is there anything that we can learn in this story by looking at them and what they're engaged in? And I would say to you the answer is an obvious yes. It's easy for us to be in a position when we are depending on someone or something else other than God himself. And that simply means that we would rely on or look to or be controlled or influenced by something other than God in a hope that we will find contentment or fulfillment or satisfaction or happiness um, or that something that we're looking for. And I would suggest to you that not only do we look to those things, we even sacrifice to them. We don't just hope that those things will bring us happiness. We turn them into idols and we sacrifice to them. Now, that might sound weird to you. Let me demonstrate what I mean. You and I make sacrifices every day. Some of them are big, some of them are small. Right? In the economy, Andrew, the sacrifice is what? We trade money for stuff or for someone's time. Uh, that's called having a job. Some of you will get there one day. Right? You give up your time and someone gives you money in exchange, right? You made a sacrifice. I can give up a day for a day's wage. That's a sacrifice. Uh, then we turn around and we give up some of our spending power for the sake of some of the conveniences that we want. That's called buying a car, right? Or eating out at Macca's. Um, we sacrifice time with one friend in order to have time with another friend. That's called RSVP. You don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> we sacrifice... Uh, well, sorry, we sacrifice time on the road uh, for keeping our license. That's called staying within the speed limit. We sacrifice money so that we don't have to cook or do dishes. That's called eating out. We sacrifice uh, health for a momentary pleasure of alcohol or junk food. That's called being dumb. Uh, <laughs> some of us sacrifice sleep or school grades for video games. That's also dumb. But you can see what we do. We trade things off, right? We're human. We can't do everything all the time. We're not God. I can't be all places at all times. So I'll have to choose. I have to prioritize. And when I do that, I'm making a sacrifice. Some of us sacrifice time with God for time in bed. Some of us sacrifice sexual purity for pleasure. Some of us sacrifice honesty and we risk our relationships so that we can feed our addictions of pornography. Some of us sacrifice selfish ambition for relationship with our parents or with our siblings or our friends. Every time we chase one thing and give up another, we are making a sacrifice. And we can tell how much we value something by the things that we're willing to sacrifice in order to get it. That's exactly how we tell how much something is worth to us. What will I give up to get it? What am I willing to sacrifice? And as I make those sacrifices and those decisions, the more I'm willing to give up, the greater value I'm putting on it. And what I'm actually doing is I'm worshipping that thing, that person, that relationship, that ambition, that achievement, those grades, that car, that house, whatever it is, that job, that promotion if I'm sacrificing so much to it, I am worshipping it. 
And that doesn't mean I'm bowing down and making a shrine, you know, little house design and bowing to it. No. What I'm actually doing is I am giving it so much value that other things in my life, even the things that I say matter, are being subjected to this thing that I'm worshipping. Worshipping doesn't just mean singing songs on Sunday morning. Worshipping means literally to bow down before. And when I push those other things down in front of the thing that I really want, I'm worshipping it. We think that we have no issue with worshipping false gods because we don't have carvings of wood or stone or bronze uh, at the foot of our bed or incense burning to, you know, little cats that wave their arms or whatever. We do. We do have false gods in our lives. We do worship idols. Some of them are not bad things. Some of them are good things, but they have become too high on our priority list. Tim Keller, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, uh, which speaks about this very issue, and he says, we think idols are bad things. Um, That is often not the case. The greater the good, the more likely that we are to expect that it can satisfy our deep needs and hopes. Anything, anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially some of the very best things in life. Maybe you think that a boyfriend or girlfriend will satisfy the loneliness that you're feeling and then you'll be happy. It can become an idol. Maybe you think you just need to get a job or get into that course or finish that degree uh, or get that qualification and then you'll be on life and you'll feel like you're back on track where you really, really want to be. That can become an idol. Maybe your issue is lack of money. If I had an income like this, then I could pay off that debt or I could buy that thing or I could be generous to that person or I could actually give to the church and I could stop worrying about money and I could relax. That, friends, that can become an idol. Maybe it's sport. Maybe it's music. The one thing that would be taken from you and life would be horrible. What is that thing for you? That can become an idol. Fashion, fitness, good-looking body, friends, popularity, business success, well-behaved kids, acceptance of others, the list is almost endless. All of those things can quickly become an idol. And the question is, if I'm giving up, sorry, the question really is, what am I giving up so much to get those things? There is, in fact, only one person that we are to value above all else, and that is God himself. So the prophets of Baal are kind of like an object lesson to us because they call out to their God, and what answer do they get? Nothing. They get nothing. In fact, it's kind of the passage goes out of its way to say they called out and they called out and they called out and they got no answer. No answer. This was not a question of dedication for them. It's not like they were, or look, they weren't very good prophets. No, it was like, there was 450 of them and they were going at it really hard. They were screaming and yelling and cutting themselves. Like, they laid it on the line. It was not a question of dedication. It was simply a matter of truth. They were calling out, but to the wrong thing. Things that we chase after, some of them are good things. Some of them are really good things. 
but if we think that they will bring us the satisfaction that we're looking for in life, then we're calling out to the wrong thing. It's not a question of dedication. It's simply a matter of truth. Am I calling out to the one thing that can bring me satisfaction in life, can bring me the meaning that I'm looking for? Are there things in your life that are sneaking onto the throne? One way to tell is to finish this sentence. My life would really suck if I didn't have... The Bible's full of examples of people who are asked to give up something that they really valued uh, in order to show their devotion to God, and God tested them, some of them. Um, I won't go through the list, but um, it's a long list, and it, and it goes on. And, it, and I'll talk you through the list afterwards if you, if you want, but um, is there something that you're holding on to so tightly that losing it would rock you to the core? Is there something that's holding that you're holding on to so tightly that losing it would absolutely rock you to the core. I know that I have some of those things, and this has been a real challenge for me as I read this. I was thinking, wow, you know, uh, I, can, I can name a list of things that I would be really, really troubled if I lost those things. You may not be asked to give those things up, whatever's on your list, but all of us, all of us are asked to lay them down lay them down, and be willing to leave them there. Make them subject to Jesus and his desire for us. We have to be willing to give them up uh, and to rely on God alone for satisfaction. And so here now we turn to Elijah. So yes, we have something in common with the people of Israel. We are facing a contest. There are two choices and we cannot have both. We cannot play both sides. Yes, we have something with the prophets of Baal. We can be very easily sucked into a space where we're calling on the wrong things to give us satisfaction. Yes, I'd like to say, yes, we have something in common with Elijah. No, I don't expect you to rock up and declare a drought. We actually need rain, please. Um, But we are like Elijah in the sense that we can have a relationship with the one true God and we have opportunity to call on him and prove him to be undeniable and reliable. God invites us into this space where we can be prayerfully dependent on him. But I want to be really clear about what I mean when I say prayerfully dependent on him. I want to be really clear about what I I think this passage is telling us about what dependence is and what dependence is not. So first of all, we've talked about this notion of being so controlled and influenced by God that everything we do is impacted on, uh, by him. This is not, we're not talking about trouble-free existence. Uh, dependence on God doesn't mean smooth sailing. It means God is with you as you sail. Um, secondly, dependence on God does not mean when I'm out of my depth, I just turn to God and call on him. Nathan talked about this this morning. We all have this tendency of saying, well, when I'm in trouble, that's when my prayer life kind of ramps up and I do a whole lot of calling on God. That is not dependence on God. That is actually dependence on self and then realizing that I wasn't enough and then I depend on God. Right? And there's two problems with this approach. First of all, it encourages, I think, it encourages unwise living. Um, I make dumb 
decisions uh, because I was relying on myself, then I realize it and I expect God to be my get-out-of-jail-free card. God is here to glorify himself, not to rescue us from our own dumb choices. And in fact, if he was continually doing that, I don't think I would learn a whole lot about making wise choices and leaning on God from the very start. Secondly, and more importantly, I think the problem with this approach of depending on God means when I get in trouble, I I, kind of lean on God and say, well, God, you're going to have to help me now. Um, The problem with that approach is it assumes that I was okay in the first place or that I am okay in some circumstances, that I actually do have some sphere where I'm okay without God. And that is actually not the case. Right? If, I say to, if I say to you, uh, I think I'm at a point where I'm now having to depend on God, right? hidden in that sentence is an assumption that there was some point before that where I didn't need to depend on God. Not true. Not true at all. Listen to what John 15 says. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, that is connected, dependent on God, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. Third thing about dependence on God that we learn from this passage is modelled by Elijah that uh, dependence on God is not just dependence on his power, but also dependence on his timing. Elijah is dependent on God's timing. He goes to Ahab when God directs him to, and he announces the drought. Three years he waits. Now this is three years of God's people suffering with no rain, lack of food. Imagine how many times Elijah would have loved to go and intervene right then. And he would have said, God, isn't it enough? It's been three months now. It's starting to pinch. God made him wait three years. And then the showdown. Why was that the point? That was God's decision. Why was it three years and not four? That was God's decision. It was at God's initiative and God's timing that Elijah acted. He was dependent not just on God's power, but also on God's time. Fourth thing I think this passage tells us about dependence on God is that dependence on God means dependence on his agenda. It's not depending on God to achieve what I think should be achieved or to give the lesson that I think should be given. It's depending on God to set the agenda. Seeking first God's honour and glory, not our own. Listen to Elijah's prayer when he prays and he steps forward and, he's, and he has kind of set this whole scene up and he steps forward and he doesn't actually say, Lord, bring fire. He says, just let it be known today that you are God in Israel. He kind of leaves the means up to God. He hopes that it's going to be fire because he's, he's kind of prepared something to burn. But he says, just let it be known that you're God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, so that the people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. He basically says, look, this is really not about fire and stones and wood and cows. This is about the people's hearts. That's ultimately what Elijah was praying for. He was praying for God's agenda, not his own. He was not even praying for his own life. Had things not gone so well, there was actually 900 of them. You might see the 450 prophets of Baal. There was 450 prophets of, or prophetesses of Asherah. 900 of them, one of Elijah. Brave man. Uh, 
And he doesn't pray for his life, and he doesn't pray for fire, and he doesn't pray for vindication. He simply prays, let it be known that you are God and that they would know that you are God. Some of you are praying that kind of prayer for your friends or for your parents or for your kids. Some of us need to learn to let go of our own agenda and simply ask God to show himself. Ask God to say, I'm Lord, I'm God. The fifth and last thing that I think this passage tells us about dependence on God uh, is that dependence on God means consciously listening to him and talking with him. And this is where the prayer pit comes in. If we need God every day, if it's true that I'm dependent on God for every day, then I kind of need to be speaking with him every day. In this passage, we see Elijah listening to God and we see Elijah speaking to God. And he finally, he finishes with this prayer, this prayer of, well, God, here we are. Uh, I think I've done what you asked. I've set up the showdown. Um, I've given you the chance to prove that you're the real deal. Uh, In fact, I've kind of gone the extra mile Um, on your sacrifice, I've drenched it in water. Sorry about that. But I know you can handle it, God. And he he lays it down on the line. He just just says, God, here we are, and now it's, it's time for you to do the bit that only you can do. Personally, this whole listening to God, talking to God on a regular basis, this is my big challenge and conviction. Because when someone comes up to me and says, hey Andy, how are you going? How's your prayer life? I'm tempted to do one of two things, change the topic or lie. There's grace for you and me in this space. God's not loving me less when I don't pray. But like a dad who wants to listen to his kids and spend time with his kids, I'm missing out. I'm missing out when I don't pray. So let me me leave you with some tips uh, that I I read uh, from a group called Desiring God. They're fantastic. Someone who's more tech-savvy than me can find a way to post this article uh, on the uh, young adult space or the church space. Uh, But here's seven tips uh, that I want to leave with you um, about prayer. Um, Some of them are practical. Some of them are heart-based. But they've been a real challenge to me, and I hope that they're a help uh, as well to you. Number one tip about prayer, pick a time and place. Uh, being able to pray anywhere and any time is fantastic, but sometimes it means we pray nowhere and no time. Uh, pick a time and pray, place and make it your place to intentionally pray. It doesn't mean that you can't pray at other times, and of course we should, uh, but find a time when you and God can be alone. Uh, I've found my time in the car as I travel to and from, I just sort of put along down the eastern freeway in a lot of traffic. And instead of tooting and trying to duck lanes, I sit and I'm like, that's fine. This can be a 15-minute queue. That's a 15-minute prayer. Uh, and sometimes I pray about the traffic, but I, I try to find other things to pray about. Number two, listen before you speak. Let God have the first word. Let his word first enter your mind and let it impact what you say back to him. And if you read something in his word and you learn something, well, tell him about it. Lord, I've never, ever read this before. I never knew that you did that. I never knew that you said that. I never knew that you were like that. I've got so many questions, God. Why would you say that? Why would you do that? Why does this say that? I don't know what these words mean. Let God have the first word. 
let it impact how you speak to him, let it impact what you say to him, and then after that, move on with your agenda and move on to your list, but let God speak first. Prioritize the, sorry, number three is prioritize the spiritual over the circumstantial. Our deepest needs are not, you know, your car repairs um, or the job application um, or the grades or the exam uh, or even the friends uh, who are causing you difficulty or the relationships that are causing you angst. Our deepest needs are actually our spiritual ones, not our circumstantial ones. Our deepest needs are our spiritual ones. Pray for your heart. Pray for boldness to speak truth. Pray for your purity. Pray that you'll be a witness. Pray for your spiritual more than your circumstantial. Uh, Don't be afraid, number four, don't be afraid to stop and pray right now. And when I mean right now, I mean in the moment. Uh, Prayer doesn't stop at my quiet time. Um, and we can and should bring things to God in prayer at every opportunity. It's, I know that it's one thing that young adults are speaking about, trying to form new norms um, amongst ourselves. And one of those can be to pray right then and now, sharing with each other and saying, hey, can you pray for me about this? Or I'll pray for you about that. Right then is okay. In fact, it's really good. Number five, identify your prayer circles. This is one really just that talks about being intentional um, about the people and the things you pray for. Uh, if you pray for the whole world and every six or seven billion uh, of them, uh, you'll, be, you'll be a long time and you won't get anything else done in life. Um, think about the people that God has put in your life. They're there for a reason. Pray about those people. Pray for your family. Uh, pray for your friends. Uh, pray for your nation. Um, but think about your prayer circles um, and prioritize those that you pray for. Number six, ask for whatever you wish. Ask for whatever you wish, literally anything. We talked about that when we prayed before the service. The challenge was, what do we expect from God? Do we pray and say, you know, sort of a half-hearted, you know, hope it goes well, God, if you don't mind. Um, We'd like it to just be an average service with average attendance and um, average impact. Um, Nothing too big and nothing too small. Um, Do we have the guts to pray for our wildest dream? Do we have the faith to say, well, God, if you can do anything, then this is what we'd really love. This is what we'd be amazed by. The Bible tells us that God can do more than you could ask or imagine. Imagine the wildest thing. Imagine the most amazing thing. You know what I imagine? I imagine a parliament in Australia of 150 Christian people. Imagine that. The Bible says that God could do better than that. He could do better than that. Do we have the faith? Do we have the boldness, the courage? Do we even bother to ask for something that's way out there. I'll tell you something funny, just as an aside. The other day, my youngest boy, Ben, he's six years old, almost six, he lost a little Hot Wheels car. He was quite upset. It has glow-in-the-dark wheels. (laughs) And he wanted to go outside look for it. It was dark and it's cold. And I said to him, it's not a great idea. You won't find it in the dark. We still went outside. He rode on my back and we looked around the garden. We didn't find it. And I said, look, you know someone who does know where it is. God knows where it is. And 
He doesn't need glow in the dark to find it. Uh, and I said, look, we could pray. We could pray about this. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, man, I hope this goes well. <laughs> and I thought to myself, if I would pray about the big things, why would I not encourage my kids to bring anything, anything to God? And so Ben, crying about his Hot Wheel cars, he sort of bundled up in his bed. And we prayed and we said, God, you know where the car is. And if, if it's okay with you, please would you help us find it? Next morning, Jono was, I don't know, sort of wading through the Lego space that he has. And it's, it's like a burglar system. You know, we have Lego spread out on the floor so people can't walk in. And, um, Jono was wading through the Lego thing and he found the lost car. And he brought it to Ben and Ben, ben said, look, Dad, God found it. And I said to him, now this, this feels dumb, but it doesn't in a way. I said to him, does that encourage you? Does, like, do you realize that if God can find a Lego car, God can do even more, even bigger things than that? He's like, yeah, I'm going to ask God to find it. And then he just named another thing that he'd lost. <laughs> and a really, really micro version, right? His faith is being built up. What he's having is an experience of God answer prayer. And he's like, well, if God can do that, I'm asking again. I'm doing that again. Because we have that opportunity. God, uh, he wants us to come and he says, bring it to me. Ask for whatever you wish. I can do more than you can ask or imagine. Ben was not, I don't think, really expecting that the Hot Wheel car would show up so fast. And when it did, he's like, I'm doing that again. Number seven, be willing to ask one more time. Be willing to ask one more time. Don't lose heart when we pray. If God has given you a burden or a desire to pray another day for that thing that still has not come about or for that person who has still not found the Lord or that relationship that still is broken, whatever it is that you're praying about, if God has given you a burden or a desire to pray for that another day, then pray. If you believe that burden or desires from him, then be willing to ask one more time. So there is a contest for your heart. We have something in common with the people of Israel. There is a contest going on for our heart. And like the people of Israel, we need to make a decision about who we will chase after. Who will we rely on? We can't have it both ways. Like the prophets of Baal, we find ourselves sacrificing to false gods, sacrificing and worshipping false gods, things that we think will bring us answers, happiness, fulfilment, satisfaction, contentment. And in our time of need, those gods don't answer. They do not answer. What is sneaking onto the throne of your life? And like Elijah, we have the opportunity to have direct communication with the God of the universe. Direct communication with the God of the universe. He asks us and he says, hey, call me and I'll answer. He wants us to know him. He wants us to rely on him. Not just when we're out of our depth. Because to be honest, we're always out of our depth. Right? I know about you. I'm not really qualified to run my life. We are always in need of God. I'm going to pray and I'm going to at the start of this pray, prayer, sorry, I'm going, to, I'm going to use a phrase that was introduced to me uh, at a Passover 
festival that I went to a few weeks back. Uh, and it's a Jewish phrase. I can't say it in Hebrew, so I'm just going to say it in English. Uh, but it says this, and it, and it casts our prayers in such great context. It kind of puts us and God in the right place as we start our prayer. And it's this, it's this phrase, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe. It's not just dear God. It's not like a pen pal letter. This is blessed are you, God. So blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe. So let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe. It's so amazing that from that position, you say to us that you want to be known that you want us to speak to you, you want to speak to us. And you want to be the thing that we rely on. Lord, help us to identify the things that we are chasing or holding on to or wanting uh, that we think uh, will make a difference in our life, that we we think it's going to make us feel better, be cooler, have more friends, uh, be satisfied. It'll end those worries, end those problems. Lord, help us to see those things in their true relationship to you. Help us to see those things as far, far, far less important to you. And if we need to, Lord, help us to be willing to lay them down, to make those things bow down in front of your throne. Help us to see things that have snuck onto the throne of our lives and that we are now sacrificing to. Help us to see those things where we're like, man, I've given up so much time for that thing. I've sacrificed relationships for that thing. I've given up, I've, I've given up so much to have that thing and I still don't have it or it's still not making me happy. Help us to name those things. Help us to subject them uh, to you. Help us, Lord, to remember that. Uh, we can call on you anytime, any place, anywhere. Help us to be disciplined about uh, uh, about bringing our day to you, bring our life to you, bring our issues, whether it's as small as a Hot Wheels car or as big as you know world peace. Uh, Lord, help us to remember that you watch over it all. As King of the Universe, you see it all. Help us, Lord, to. Uh, put you on the throne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Elijah challenged the people, how long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. Make up your minds. It's a good challenge for us this week to ask God to really be revealing on our hearts what things we are depending on more than him. Uh, I'm just going to say grace and then um, we'll get stuck into some fellowship together. Dear Lord God, thank you that um, you are all that we could ever need, um, all we could ever want, um, and you satisfy our every single need, Lord. We just ask that you will change our hearts, um, that you'll reveal to us what we are placing ahead of you, um, and that, yeah, you'll really just shape us to um, draw nearer to you in those situations. Lord, I just thank you for the food um, that we're about to eat. Um, I just ask that you'll bless it to our bodies um, and bless the hands that have prepared it. In your name we pray all these things. Amen.